Thank you, uh, team, for leading us off so amazingly. So wonderful to sing together. And I believe that as the church unites and lifts up their voice in praise, uh, we're declaring against the forces of darkness, and we're declaring against that sinful nature inside of us that's still fighting for control, that we believe God has authority in this place and in our hearts. Um, So if you're new here, or if you're joining us, or um, you just haven't seen me speak in about six years, (laughs) my name's Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is a privilege to open God's word with you all today as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. So this morning we opened uh, our service with a song called Behold. The author of the song, Taylor Leonhart, explained in a recent interview why she wrote it. She said that she was inspired by the Apostle Paul's dream and vision in Revelation 21, verse 5, when he hears the risen Jesus say, Behold, I am making all things new. So she started dreaming. What what could that look like in a world that experiences both joy and suffering? She goes on to talk about how throughout history, people have asked the same question over and over. If there will be a day when all that we know is painful in this life, is made right. She concludes the interview by saying, our hope is not just that Jesus will make things right one far off day in the future. It's that even now, he has already begun. I don't know if you remember the melody of our first song, Behold. We're going to have the lyrics come up. Actually, I'm going to invite you to sing it with me again. The empty filled, the wounded healed, the broken back together. The poor are blessed, the weary rest. We will dance forever. The blinded see, the chained are free, the doubtful now believer. The outcast known, the orphan home, you are my redeemer. Behold, behold, behold what God can do. Behold, behold, he's making all things new. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring Mark to write this good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Lord Jesus, we believe a future day is coming when you will return and make all things new. But we also believe that you have given us your spirit to begin that process of renewal here and now. So we ask, Lord, despite our pain, in whatever form we may experience it, would you open our ears to hear your truth and open our hearts to receive your love and mercy. And if there is any power or presence that is trying to prevent us from hearing your voice, we ask in your name, Jesus, to take it captive and send it away. Come, Holy Spirit, fill this space and the hearts of your people with your peace. Amen. Mark 2, 1 to 12. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. 
While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Mm. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. This is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Leanne. So yeah, if you have your Bibles, Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, or on your phones, and this text will appear on the screen as we go through. So let's begin walking through this good news story together. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. At some point, early on in his ministry, Jesus left his home town of Nazareth, leaving behind his family, and moved to the small lakeside town of Capernaum. These two towns were about the same distance apart as it is from Abbotsford to Chilliwack. Capernaum was a small town, so almost everybody knew who Jesus was. The elders he talked with in the town square, the fishermen he helped untangle nets with down at the docks, the children he played with in the dusty streets, the merchants he bought food from in the marketplace, and the religious teachers he debated with in his synagogue. But the real reason he was known to everyone was because of the many sick and possessed people he had healed. You could say it made him famous. Capernaum was more central and had become a major trade route, so this is where Jesus chose to make his base of operations for his traveling ministry throughout Galilee. As verse 1 indicates, he had been away for several days, and when he returned home, word spread like wildfire that he was back in town. And soon the place where he was staying was packed with visitors. If you've followed the entertainment world or sporting world at all, I'm sure you know of stories about crowds appearing out of nowhere when word gets out that there is someone famous in town. Here's two quick video clips that show how fans and followers respond to famous people. So the first video is of Justin Bieber. Baby, baby. Back in 2010, when fans found out which hotel he was staying at in London. And then the second short video clip is of, uh, from November 2022 in Israel that shows how some Jewish followers and rabbis reacted when a famous young rabbi tried to go out into public.
That's what it's like every morning when I try and leave my cul-de-sac. <laughs> we need to put security in the budget. Jamie, if you're watching this. So when we read these stories of the crowds coming out in droves to see Jesus, we can see with a real-time perspective of how intense it could have been as people clamored to see the famous Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't want to see Jesus? He was teaching with authority like no one else. He was casting out demons. He was healing the sick and diseased. No one had ever seen or heard anything like this. Are there any famous people that come to your mind that you would like to meet? Maybe an actor, performer, athlete, a TED Talk speaker, a podcaster, a social media influencer? Picture them in your mind and ask yourself, what is it that draws me to them? Is it their charisma, their humor, their abilities? their intellect. The crowds in our story were drawn to Jesus for probably a number of reasons. For some people, it was simply because he was considered a famous person, and everyone else was following him around, so they did too. For others, it was because his miracles were sensational. It was entertaining. It was new and different. And still for others, it was probably intriguing because when he preached God's word, it came alive through his actions of love and compassion for people. Verse 2, soon the house where he was staying was so packed with people that there was no more room, even outside the door. We don't know if this was a planned event or something more spontaneous that just unfolded, but the fame of Jesus has attracted crowds to this house. And whose house is this anyways that we are packing visitors into? It seems to imply that Jesus was staying at someone's house rather than a place he owned. Quite possibly, it was Simon and Andrew's home, where Jesus had previously stayed and healed Simon's mother-in-law. Archaeological findings of ancient homes from this time period and era show that a typical house could hold up to about 50 people. What was that like for the homeowner to have all these visitors coming into their house? I mean, how would you feel about that? Picture yourself sitting at home. You're in your favorite chair, in your living room, and suddenly people start coming into your house. They're moving furniture around. They're climbing on top of everything. They're moving stuff, all because they want to see Jesus, which is a cool thing. But I think that would be hard for me, and maybe for most of us in North America who have grown to love our privacy and, and our stuff. This really is a challenging act of servanthood by whoever that homeowner is. It also states in verse 2 that there were so many people that there was no more room, even outside the door. So typically homes in this time period and area didn't have exterior windows like, like we do because they would just have big open holes in their wall. They didn't have glass to keep out the robbers or the bad weather. Instead, it was more common to have a few smaller windows positioned up higher on exterior walls. So if you weren't inside the house with Jesus, you were squished into one door, hoping to see and hear what was going on inside. Verse 2 and 3 continues. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. It's significant that Jesus was preaching the word 
to the people. Previously in chapter 1, when Jesus was in Capernaum, he was teaching in the synagogue, and the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. What does that look like, to teach with real authority? And how did they know he was teaching with authority? It was because as he was preaching about how the kingdom of heaven was coming to earth, a demon-possessed man confronted him, and then Jesus cast the evil spirit out of that man, setting him free. If you look up the Greek word for authority in this text, it carries this meaning. The right to exercise power, the power of one whose will and commands must be obeyed by others. The difference was that Jesus was able to show them the power of God, not just talk about it like the religious teachers of the law. You see, when Jesus said that he had come to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor had come, he wasn't repeating Isaiah's, Isaiah the prophet's words just to be fulfilled at another time in the future. When he spoke those words, he meant he was going to fulfill it right now in their midst. For us today, when we read Jesus' words, do we believe that Jesus is here in his authority to proclaim that if we are captives, you will be released? That if you are blind, you will see. That if you are oppressed, you will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor falls on you. This is why it's so important for followers of Christ to be lovers of God's word. Because a time will come when we feel like a captive. Or that we are blind. Or being oppressed. And in that moment, Jesus can remind us that he has the authority to set us free. Verse 4. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So now we have four men arriving carrying a paralyzed man on a mat trying to get to Jesus. It's interesting that the crowd seems oblivious to the four men that are trying to get their friend to Jesus. And I mean, I'm sure as, they, as the four men were carrying the paralyzed man, they're coming towards the house. They were calling out, excuse me, we need to get to Jesus. Please let us in. Our friend needs to be healed. Hello? Is anybody listening? But the crowd doesn't budge. They seem to be a barrier, a wall between them and getting to Jesus. It's possible that the crowd saw the paralyzed man as unclean because of his disability and wanted him to stay away. At the time, there was a faulty belief going around that said if you had a disease like leprosy or a disability like blindness or paralysis, that it was a consequence of having sin in your life. Or it was because your parents had sinned. But Jesus addresses that in John chapter 9, and he says, that isn't true. We all wrestle with the fallen, the beginning, the curse. It affects us all. But that's not the case in what Jesus is talking about here. Or maybe it's like the two short videos we watched earlier showing how people behave around famous people, and everybody was just more concerned about wanting to see Jesus for themselves. But whatever the reason, the crowd showed no mercy to the paralyzed man. So the four men found another way to Jesus. Now, we don't know who was all in the crowd, but we do know their actions. Created a wall, stopping those who desired an encounter with Jesus. Looking at the four friends, how the four friends retreated poses a great question for us as the church. Do we have behaviors that are like barriers 
inhibiting people from seeing Jesus? Do our behaviors here in this building or on the streets or in our workplace or in our schools communicate God's invitation to come and encounter his love or do we have uh, almost like a self-righteous behavior that tells people, ah, you're not welcome. Verse four continues. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. These men are determined. They will not be discouraged by the crowd's lack of concern towards them. They will find another way to get to him. Remember, most houses had small windows located high up on the walls, so they couldn't stuff the paralyzed man through one of those. And the door was blocked by a human wall. So someone in the group came up with the idea to go up on the roof and dig a hole. I would have loved to have been there for this conversation between the five men, kind of out on the street as they try and figure out what to do. Uh, I have an idea. Okay. Why don't we dig a hole in the roof that isn't ours and hope we don't offend the religious teachers of the law and Jesus, the famous rabbi? Can you picture the other four guys all just looking at each other, wheels spinning, processing this idea? You know, it's not such a bad idea, really. The roof can be fixed, and we're here. We're this close to Jesus. So the question is, how did they get the paralyzed friend up on the roof? You saw in the picture there, it was common for houses in this time period to have a staircase built along one side of the house that went up to the flat roof. The roof was made by placing wood rafters on top of the walls and then laying bundles of grass and hay and smaller sticks across the beams and then adding mud, which was then rolled out and allowed to dry. And then more mud could be applied and rolled and allowed to dry, making it very sturdy, very strong. So the roof was strong enough for people to walk on. They could dry their clothes or food up there. Or at night, if it was too hot to sleep inside, they could sleep on the roof, enjoying the cool breeze blowing off the lake. Okay, so they carry their friend up on the roof, and now it was time for the next step. So the four men start digging. They start digging down through the layers of dried mud and then start pulling up the bundles of grass and twigs. This took a while because they had to make a big hole a hole big enough to get their friend down on a stretcher. Imagine the mess it was making inside the house with dust, chunks of dried mud, twigs, sticks, and bugs falling down on the floor and the occupants below. With the hole finally done, they tied ropes to each end of the wood stretcher and lowered him down into the room right in front of Jesus. I wonder what was going through Jesus' mind during this demolition project. I hope the owners wanted a sunroof? <laughs> Probably not. From what we are told, he didn't seem surprised or irritated with this, with the commotion and mess being created in the middle of his teachings time. Instead, he sees a kingdom inbreaking opportunity. You know, there are two great lessons we can already learn from this. Number one, don't let anything or anyone stop you from seeking an encounter with Jesus. Don't listen to those discouraging voices that tell you you're not worthy enough or good enough or that you've done way too many bad things. Jesus came for whoever would believe in him. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right enough for God. He takes us right where we're at in our ugliest state. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. 
So if you are here today and you've been told by someone or by some voices that you shouldn't bother Jesus, that is not the voice of God. He calls you to himself. Press on. Do whatever it takes to encounter Jesus. I think the second lesson to learn from Jesus in this part is to look for inbreaking moments of God's kingdom and what to be interruptions in your everyday. Jesus didn't get irritated or have a temper tantrum when the, when the roof started falling in and interrupted his precious teaching time. He saw it for what it was, an opportunity to show the grace of God. It's not an easy thing to do. I'll be the first person to confess that over the years there have been circumstances that unfolded, interruptions, and I didn't handle them with God's grace. But if we can begin to train ourselves to take a breath, step back from what is happening, and ask God to help us see what he is doing in what appears to be an interruption, we may be surprised God has redeeming work to be done through how you handle it. And that is encouraging that God would choose to use us for his glory, even in our imperfect state. Verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. What could have been seen as destructive and rude behavior actually became a catalyst that sets off a chain reaction in the lives of four groups of people. It begins with the belief of the four men to do whatever it took to get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. They were so convinced that Jesus could heal him that they carried him from wherever, through the bustling, busy daytime streets, past the unmerciful crowd, up the stairs, dug a hole in some stranger's roof, lowered their friend down right in front of the famous Jesus, risking insults and mockery for disturbing him like this. But Jesus didn't see insolence. He saw belief. As James Edwards puts it in his Mark commentary, we know nothing of the beliefs of the four friends or the paralytic, except that they take action. Faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. Jesus saw the depths and effort of their belief that he was fully sufficient for healing their paralyzed friend. It wasn't like they had cracked a secret code. It was just that in this particular moment, their faith was what Jesus saw and moved his heart to act upon. But what does he actually do for the paralyzed man? Verse 5 again, but this time focusing on Jesus' words to the man. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, my child, your sons are forgiven. If the faith of the four friends is the catalyst in the chain reaction of grace, then the first collision is with the paralyzed man. Jesus sees their belief in him to heal, but instead of doing what they think needs to be done, Jesus sees something even greater in the man's heart. The man's desire and or his need for forgiveness. We don't know what sins he has forgiven, but I believe in this moment the Father enables Jesus to perceive something in the man's heart. A spiritual paralysis that he needs healing from first. So right there, in the midst of a gawking crowd, Jesus performs a hidden miracle. He blessed the man with forgiveness of whatever sins haunted him, or shamed him, or guilted him, or tortured him. My child, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that just like Jesus? We come to him with what our list 
of needs and wants. And they can all be good things, just like the paralytic. Wanting to be healed, that was a good thing. But then Jesus, in the oneness with the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit, sees into the man's heart. He sees into our hearts and looks past the layers of mud and twigs and bundles of branches and sees our greatest need to be made whole, to be forgiven. I get emotional at this part. And from the cross, covered in blood and cuts and bruises and dripping in insults and curses, Jesus says, with the bursting heart of the Father, my child, my children, your sins are forgiven. God knew what the paralyzed man was asking for, but in that moment, he also knew there was a deeper need to attend to. And in verse 6, the next collision in this chain reaction is about to happen. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? The first thing we take note of is that for the first time, In our story, a specific group of people has been highlighted in the house. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, it says that all types of religious leaders had showed up from every village in Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. That's a lot of firepower. Apparently, Jesus' teaching and healing ministry had started to make waves far and wide in the religious community. And they had come to see firsthand this famous rabbi. The second thing we take note of is that Jesus knew what the religious teachers of the law were thinking. In the same way that God the Father enabled Jesus to see the real need of the paralyzed man, he revealed the thoughts of the teachers of the law. How do you feel when you hear that Jesus knew their thoughts? It can be a bit uneasy, can't it? Because we like to think that we are quite alone with our thoughts. But we are not, and that is not something to be afraid of. It's actually an opportunity for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus does know your thoughts, but he is also the answer to help us in healing them. Jesus taught in Matthew 15 that these words we speak and the thoughts we think and the actions we act upon all find their genesis, their beginning in our hearts. So if you find yourself having thoughts that are not godly or unwholesome, that is a sign that our heart needs attention from Jesus. Don't let them linger. Take those thoughts captive and ask Jesus to come and replace them with his words of truth. The Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 12 to ask God to come and transform us by the renewing, ongoing renewing of our minds. This past week, our prayer teams met for some training with Jeremy Kinnenberg, who is coming to lead the Soul Care Conference we are hosting on March 3rd. And he gave a great example of how to handle thoughts that are not from God. He quotes two of the following scriptures as prayer to God for help. This is Psalm 51.10. So when he has something that he feels is not from God, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. 
Another psalm he quotes is Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. This is the hard part. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You can save these verses on your phone. You can write them on cue cards and hide them around your your house or in your car. Just do whatever it takes to keep a healthy heart. Back to our story. In verse 8, we are told that some of the religious leaders gathered there, that some of the religious leaders gathered there thought to themselves, but only God can forgive sins. And we don't believe Jesus is God, so that means he is blaspheming against God. So to blaspheme against God means to speak or act disrespectfully against him. And the penalty for this was death. So how is Jesus going to handle this? When Jesus learns of the religious leader's thoughts, he confronts them on their private thinking and asks them a question. All right. Here's a test of how we can discern if what I have said is blasphemy. Let me ask you. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So which is easier? Well, no one can see if the man's sins are forgiven, so like measurably, that seems the easiest thing to say. Anyone could claim that. On the other hand, if someone said, pick up your mat and walk, and the person does or doesn't get up and walk, that is also a measurable response to what was commanded. Verse 10, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in this a lot in the book of Mark, which was a name prophesied for himself from the Old Testament book of Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. So these are Daniel's words describing what God had revealed to him. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all of the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The Son of Man, as described in Daniel, was a revelation about the Father, giving Jesus the man authority and honor and sovereignty over the nations of the world, and that he would have an eternal rule. Anyone who knew Jesus, anyone who knew the scriptures would have picked up on Jesus' use of this name for himself and his claim that he was the fulfillment of it. We now go to, to see the end of the chain reaction that all started back with the persistent faith of the four men. Verse 12. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. For the second time in our story, the paralyzed man is healed. This time, though, it is from his paralysis. He stands up, Sins forgiven, legs made whole, rolls up his mat, and walks out the front door. Right past the crowd of onlookers and teachers of religious law. Can you imagine what it have been what 
Can you imagine what would have been like to process what was unfolding? Jesus claiming to have the authority to forgive sins, which only God can do, and then he proves he has the authority to do this by healing the man, which only God can do. No wonder it says the onlookers were stunned. Their response, even if they didn't realize it at the time, was to worship God. It says that they were amazed and praised God, exclaiming that they have never seen anything like this before. Behold, behold, he is doing something new. At the beginning of the message, I started by talking a bit about what inspired the author, Taylor Leonhardt, to write the song, Behold. And she said that her dream for churches who sang the song was to realize that no matter what they are facing in life, our hope is not just that Jesus will make things right one far off day in the future. It's that even now, he has already begun. As we wrap up today, I pray that something from the time we spent together in the text has landed on your hearts. But if there's one thing I would like you to remember, it's that our lives can only be forever changed by an encounter with Jesus. Your lives can only be forever changed by an encounter with Jesus. If we could have the last slide up, Vaughn, I want to invite you to do a simple exercise with me. I just want you to read through the list of characters on the screen and pick the one that you feel relate, that you relate to most now. And I say right now because I think we can all feel like one of these characters at different points in our lives. So if you can see that, we have the crowd. Am I like the crowd? They were just observers of someone famous. Am I like the religious teachers of the law? They saw Jesus, but never had an encounter with him. Am I like the four friends? They didn't know Jesus yet, but they were searching for God. Or am I like the paralyzed man? He came to Jesus with what, what he thought was his greatest need, only to be surprised in his encounter. So one thing I noticed as I was working or thinking through the different people from our story is that each group or person can represent where we can be at in our relationship in encountering Jesus. So that's what the purpose of this diagram is, if that helps you. So if we look at the, first, the top, the outside ring, based on our crowd, the, based on our story, the crowd is on the furthest ring out from Jesus. They were basically on the outside, just observing Jesus from a distance with no interaction and not really looking for an encounter with him. Is this where you feel you are at right now in your walk with God? The next ring in would be the religious teachers. They were closer to Jesus, and they even interacted with him, but they didn't really want to accept who he said he was. And honestly, they didn't really want Jesus to affect the way they lived. Is that where you feel you are at right now in your walk with God? The third ring is the four men who carried their friend. They were the next closest to Jesus. They believed he could heal their friend, but they didn't get to take the next step themselves to encounter Jesus like the paralyzed man did. But they are definitely searching and open to God. Is this where you feel you are at right now in your walk with God? And the final ring is the paralyzed man. He is the closest to Jesus in our story. 
He believed Jesus could heal him and actually put himself in a position where Jesus could look into his heart and heal him of his greatest need, which in this case was his need for forgiveness. Is this where you feel you're at right now in your walk with God? I'm gonna invite the music team to come forward. And as they do, I just wanna pray into this text um, before we sing our last songs. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring Mark to write this true story down so it could be passed on to us. As we pray into this story, would you send your perfect love to dry out any, drive out any fear that may be residing in our hearts? Come, Holy Spirit. This morning, we confess that at times, we can be like the crowds that follow Jesus around, just observers, not really looking for an encounter with you. Friends, if you see this in God, if you see this in our hearts today, would you heal us of this spiritual paralysis and baptize us in the power of your spirit, making us new? We also confess that at times, we can also be like the religious teachers who, who saw you but didn't really want to accept you as God and certainly didn't want you to affect the way they lived. Father, if you see this in our hearts, would you heal us of this spiritual paralysis and baptize us in the power of your spirit, making us new? We also confess that at times we can be like the four friends who believed in you but didn't take the next step to have an encounter with Jesus themselves. Father, if you see this in our hearts, would you heal us of this spiritual paralysis and baptize us in the power of your spirit, making us new? And finally, we confess that at times we can be like the paralyzed man who, who came to you with what he thought was his greatest need. If you see this in our hearts, would you heal us of this spiritual paralysis and baptize us in the power of your spirit, making us new? Church family, if you have confessed sin today, hear these words spoken by your heavenly Father. My children, your sins are forgiven. Stand up and come home. Amen.